In the fall of 1123, a band of Armenian knights bound themselves by oath to a perilous mission, a suicide mission that would almost certainly bring about their deaths. In their fortress of Behesni, they met and swore their lives to the task of freeing from captivity two Frankish rulers, their own lord, the Count of Edessa, Jocelyn, and the King of Jerusalem, Baldwin. The two men were being held in the dungeons of the impregnable fortress of Karpert by the Seljuk emir, Belik Ghazi. Despite their commitment to the task at hand, the Armenians were soon forced to recognize that their numbers were way too few to storm the walls of the mighty citadel. Yet soon enough, an opportunity presented itself when Belik Ghazi left Karpert to attend to business elsewhere. The emir had taken the bulk of his forces with him, and seeing that those left in the fortress were much reduced in number, the Armenians hatched a devious scheme. Beneath the habits of monks, they hid their sharp daggers, and they covered themselves in dirt and false wounds, giving themselves the appearance of priests who'd been attacked on the road and suffered injury and violence. Bickering amongst themselves and groaning in theatrical pain, they approached the castle doors. What business have you here? barked the guards. We were attacked on the road and we demand to see the governor, responded the Armenians. It is the governor's responsibility to ensure the safety of all those who might pass through the vicinity. It went back and forth between the guards and the Armenians like this for a while, the Armenians reiterating the responsibility borne by the governor for the treatment they had received. Finally, they were permitted to enter the citadel, if only to shut them up. As the gate shut behind them, the Armenians exchanged knowing glances, and as they threw off their disguises, out came the blades. Caught unawares and depleted in force, the castle guards were soon cut down. The Armenians quickly made their way to the prison, where they found and freed both King Baldwin and Count Jocelyn, as well as the other Frankish prisoners being held with them. The Franks and the Armenians set about securing their hold over the fortress. Despite their best efforts though, some of the Turks had managed to escape the citadel, and they'd quickly raised a militia of sorts. The Turks soon had Karpert surrounded, trapping the Franks and Armenians within. Knowing that it was only a matter of time before Belik Ghazi returned in full force to kill or capture them all, Count Jocelyn decided their only hope was to bring in their own army. Just before dawn, with only the faintest hints of sunlight guiding their path, Jocelyn and two other men slipped out of the citadel and snuck past the Turks lying in wait. Once past the enemy lines, one of the men courageously volunteered to do it all over again and sneak back into the fortress to notify the king that their plan had worked. He took Jocelyn's ring as proof and returned back the way he came. Inside the fortress, all breathed a sigh of relief that aid would soon be on the way, and they set to fortifying the defenses as best they could. Not far away, at the same time, the Turkish emir, Belik Ghazi, awoke from a terrible nightmare. In a dream, he'd seemed to see Count Jocelyn blinding him with his own two hands. In a panic, he called for emissaries to travel to Karpert at once and cut off the Count's head. Belik Ghazi's worst fears were confirmed when the emissaries returned with news of what had happened. The emir collected his army and was soon at Karpert with a large and powerful host. He sent a messenger inside to present terms to the King of Jerusalem. He solemnly promised that if the fortress were to be returned to him without hindrance, he would allow the safe passage of those inside to Edessa. Looking at the height of the walls around him, King Baldwin calculated that he could hold off the Turks until Jocelyn's return. He sent back an arrogant refusal of Belik's offer, which greatly angered the emir. 
This would turn out to be a mistake on Baldwin's part. Carpert was built on a great hill, and though this made it difficult to attack head-on, Belagazi was a clever man, and he knew there was more than one way to bring the citadel crumbling down. He ordered his men to dig tunnels deep into the hill below the fortress, and fill them with beams of dry wood. Then he lit the wood on fire. As it burned, the tunnels collapsed, and the whole hill began to quake and crumble, and one of the citadel's towers came crashing down. Fear that the entire structure might be brought down beneath their feet crept into the hearts of those inside the fortress. King Baldwin surrendered unconditionally. Still, Belek Ghazi knew the king was worth more to him alive than dead. So his life and those of the other Frankish noblemen were spared, and they were led away in chains to another dungeon. But the valiant and faithful Armenians who had exposed themselves to such dangers in order to release the king and their own lord from captivity were delivered over to tortures of various kinds. Some were flayed alive, others sawn asunder, some were buried alive, and others Belek handed over to his men to serve as targets for archery practice. From another point of view, though, for their selfless courage and loyalty, their reward was great. Though they suffered terribly in this world, they had ensured for themselves immortal salvation in the next one. Welcome to History of the Uchimer, Episode 7, Bound by Hate. Our opening today was adapted from the histories of the Armenian Matthew of Edessa and the Frankish William of Tyre. Some bits are just direct quotes. They tell very similar tales, only differing in some minor details, such as the size of the Armenian force that undertook the rescue. Matthew says 15 and William says 50. And of course, some of their details, like Belagazi's dream and the immortal salvation of the Armenians, are uh, impossible to verify. But they sure do add color. The most important takeaway for today is that when the Uchamer counties and kingdoms are set up, they will make such good allies of the native Armenians that the latter will willingly give their lives to save the former, and vice versa. These were two people divided not only by language and culture, but by religion. Yes, they were both Christian, but they belonged to different churches, which were not in communion. Despite these differences, though, the bond between the two would remain strong throughout the Uchamer period. In today's episode, we'll flesh out a bit the origins of this partnership. Starting with, who are the Armenians? The Armenian people are positively ancient. It's not really clear where the term Armenian actually comes from. It's first attested in Babylonian and Greek texts from the 6th century BC as a name for the region, and was later applied to the people of that region. And it's an exonym, meaning it's not actually the word the Armenians use for themselves. They call themselves Hai, or Hayer in plural. Recent genetic studies show that the Armenians have been in the area of Armenia since at least the 13th century BC. And to give you an idea of how long ago that is, some mythological figures said to have been around at the same time include Hercules, Helen of Troy, and Moses. Armenian mythology traces their origin back even farther to around the 25th century BC and the legendary figure Hike, who gave his name to the entire people. That would place their origin farther back in time from the birth of Jesus than we are today. Even if the dates are exaggerated, the Armenians 
go way back. As we saw in episode 4, language can often help place a particular group of people. And the Armenian language is Indo-European, like English, Latin, Hindustani, Persian, and Greek. But how it fits into this family is unclear. It's close geographically to the regions where Greek and Persian are spoken, but distinct from them. There's even a theory that Armenia, not the steppe region to the north, is the true homeland of the Indo-Europeans. You know, the people who would come to dominate nearly all of Europe, Persia, and chunks of India. For most of the first millennium AD, the Armenians were sandwiched between various empires and often absorbed either partially or entirely into these empires. Nevertheless, they retained a separate Armenian identity, moving around in the region known as the Armenian Highlands, which not only contains what we would recognize today as the state of Armenia, but also parts of Georgia, western Turkey, northern Syria and Iraq, eastern Iran, and Azerbaijan. As always, a map is available at historyoftheuchmer.wordpress.com. That's once again, historyoftheuchmer, one word, dot wordpress, also one word, dot com. As indicated by the name Armenian Highlands, this is mountainous land, and that simple fact has made all the difference for the Armenian people. Effect number one, as I mentioned, the Armenians have spent centuries, if not millennia, surrounded by empires. Just staying in the first millennium AD, they first had the Romans on the west and the Persians on the right, and around the 7th century, the Persians were replaced by the Muslim Caliphate. Yet, despite being encircled by powerful, all-consuming forces, somehow, they managed to retain their own separate identity. How? The answer is mountains. In their mountain fortresses, the Armenians were always able to avoid being subjugated by their neighbors, and the grip of foreign empire was always a bit loose and uh, rather easy to wiggle out of. But that brings us to effect number two. The mountains also made Armenian unity very difficult. Medieval Armenia was a true game of thrones, featuring the local nobility called Azat, struggling for control. The Azat were divided into various houses called Tun, who were always looking to cut down a rival house and take power for themselves. Interestingly, what often determined the position of one house over another was the support of an external power. They could use the honor and prestige they gained from the backing of a foreign empire to elevate themselves above the other houses, at least temporarily. And from the perspective of the various empires and caliphates on the outside looking in, partnering up with an Armenian house was their best bet at penetrating into the Armenian highlands and exerting some level of influence. But... This proxy house usually wouldn't be able to hold on to power for long either, and another one would often rise to take their place, creating a sort of revolving door of powerful factions, often backed to some extent by Roman emperors, Persian shahs, or Muslim caliphs. So, Armenian politics became a bit of a paradox. On the one hand, the Armenians were always separate from the great powers rising and falling outside their mountain ranges. But... To benefit from the edge gained from honors and recognition from these great powers, they had to be, to some extent, plugged into the goings-ons in places like Constantinople and Baghdad. And that influence shaped the development of Armenian society and culture. The Armenians also became somewhat shrewd politicians. They understood the realpolitik going on, and they were no strangers to making unexpected alliances, a habit that will serve them well as they enter the second millennium we can clearly see this tug-of-war between local nobility and external forces in the history of Armenian religion. 
There are probably three things most people know about Armenia. One, the horrors of the Armenian Genocide and the subsequent diaspora. Two, that's where the guys in System of a Down are from. And three, Armenia was the first state to adopt Christianity as an official religion. And this is true. In the year 301, the ruler Tiridates III proclaimed Christianity as the official state religion of Armenia. But there are multiple wrinkles to this whole thing. First, Tiridates III was the ruler of Arsacid Armenia. The Arsacid dynasty in Armenia was in fact a junior branch of the Arsacid Persian Empire, better known as the Parthians, a name you should recognize if you're familiar with Roman history. Even the first religious head of the Armenian church, Gregory the Illuminator, who baptized King Tiridates, was himself an Arsacid, a Persian Armenian. Side note, Gregory's father had actually murdered Tiridates' father, the previous king, which made their Christian baptismal friendship thing a bit rocky at the start. Anyway, another wrinkle. Tiridates might have been Persian-Armenian, but he'd been placed on his throne by none other than the Romans. In 224, the Sassanids had overthrown the Parthians and become the masters of Persia. The Sassanids actually made a cameo appearance in episode 4 as the last native Persian dynasty before the rise of Islam and the Caliphate. The Sassanids also soon took over Armenia. This was bad news for the Romans, who really needed this buffer zone between them and the Persians. So, they took in the heir to the throne, the young Tiridates, and raised him in Rome. And it was with the aid of Roman emperors, first Aurelian and later Diocletian, that Tiridates was able to take back and hold on to his kingdom. At this point, Armenia was nominally Zoroastrian, but there were already many Christian faithful within their borders. However, the Sassanids were fervent Zoroastrians, and it was perhaps in an attempt to avoid them having any influence over his native Armenian population that he converted the entire country to Christianity. He went to extreme lengths to destroy any remnants of Zoroastrianism in Armenia, and firmly ensconced Christianity as the only Armenian religion. This also allowed him to root out any possible fifth columns that might have been tempted to ally with the Sassanids. Looking westwards, his decision to adopt Christianity might have also been motivated by some lingering anger towards the Roman emperor Diocletian, who had, yeah, supported Tiridates as ruler of Armenia, but also used the king's weakened position to tear off the western half of Armenia and add it to the Roman Empire, leaving Tiridates with only half of his original kingdom. Diocletian hated Christianity, and in fact, he was the one who ordered the bloodiest persecution of Christians in Roman history, known as the Great Persecution. So Armenia's conversion can't have sat well with the emperor. Yet, just a few decades later, the new emperor, Constantine, had not only put an end to Christian persecution of the empire, but himself taken the cross. This led to a period of Christianity being favored within the Roman Empire, finally culminating in the official adoption of Christianity as the official Roman religion in 380, 79 years after the Armenians had done the same. You would think that this would bring the Armenians and the Romans closer together. You would think. Tiridates' original decision to adopt Christianity seems to have been in part motivated by a desire to create a cultural separation between Armenia and its neighbors, and later Armenians would also follow this path and strive to carve out a uniquely Armenian brand of Christianity. Armenian Christianity first became truly distinct around the year 405, when the Armenian polymath, Mesrop Mashtots, created the Armenian alphabet, 
which is still in use today. Though Mashtots drew influences from other scripts, the Armenian alphabet is entirely unique and unlike any other on the planet. Mashtots was also possibly responsible for the development of the Georgian and Albanian alphabets, which, if true, would make the guy an absolute genius. I personally have a deep respect for anyone who develops a writing system. Developing three writing systems? That's hardcore. For the first century of its existence, the Armenian church had been forced to rely on Greek and Syriac, but after the advent of this new alphabet, they had their own method of recording scripture. By this point, the kingdom of Armenia was no more, but even though it had been partitioned between the Romans and the Sassanids, Mashtot's alphabet ensured that the Armenians would be able to hold on to a separate religious institution. The second decision, which would further distance the Armenian church from that of the Romans and later the Franks, came in 451 at Chalcedon. Ah, uh, yes, the Council of Chalcedon, tasked with figuring out the nature of Christ and deciding whether it was human, divine, both, or neither. Uh, wait, not that last one. I don't think. Anyway, like many Eastern churches, the Armenian church did not agree with the official decision of the Council of Chalcedon and remained non-Chalcedonian. Now, the term Monophysite is often thrown around, but the thing is, after about 1500 years, the arguments and footnotes to those arguments have become way too complicated for me to follow. Suffice it to say that the Armenian church does not view itself as Monophysite, though it most definitely is non-Chalcedonian, so that's the term I will be using. My aim, again, is not to get into theological debate, but rather the socio-political difficulties that arise from the two communities viewing each other as heretical. This is the challenge the Franks will face when they come to rule over populations that are majority non-Chalcedonian. And of course, it should go without saying that the Armenians definitely don't believe in anything like papal supremacy. This separate religious tradition and fully developed language ensured that the Armenian identity outlasted the Roman-Sassanid partition, and indeed the entirety of the Sassanid Empire, which was swallowed whole by the Muslim Caliphate in the 7th century. After the rise of the Caliphate, the Romans were forced to cower in Constantinople, and Armenia was left to deal with the Arabs on their own. Again, the same patterns of local houses looking outside the mountains for an edge over their competitors played out. You can imagine the Armenian noble houses as kids on the playground, each looking to get a nod from the biggest kid on the block. Now that the Persians were kaput and the Romans had fled the scene, the Armenians ended up looking to the Abbasid Caliph in Baghdad for his approval. During this time, one family in particular began to rise to prominence. The Bagratunis were recognized as Ikshan, or princes, by the Arabs. And although the Caliph made some attempts to fully integrate Armenia into the Caliphate, local Armenian families like the Bagratunis were once again able to hold on to a lot of local power. And the Bagratunis, as well as other local families, made various unsuccessful attempts at rebellion against the Arab overlords. Eventually, though, as the Abbasid Caliph began to lose the grip he had once held on his massive empire, local Arab emirs in Armenia started to make plays at independence from the Caliphate. And in the 880s, Ashot I of the Bagratuni house was able to use this situation to his advantage. He remained loyal to Baghdad, and with the Caliph's blessing, he was able to kick the emirs out, subjugate the rest of the Armenian houses, and for the first time in centuries, establish an independent Armenian kingdom. Well, they were still somewhat loyal to the Caliph in Baghdad, but that mattered less and less every day as the Caliph was beaten into irrelevance. 
Nevertheless, this new Bagratuni Armenian kingdom soon faced the same sort of fragmentation that was endemic to the mountains. Within a century, the Armenians were once again politically divided and wholly unprepared to stand up to a rejuvenated Roman Empire rising in the West. In episode 3, we dealt with the Roman reconquest. This reconquest was partially at the detriment of what was once the Caliphate, but it also included the eventually total annexation of what was once the Bagratuni Kingdom of Armenia. These Armenians would be incorporated into the empire, and many of them would be encouraged to move to other newly conquered regions. As the Romans took back Cilicia and northern Syria from what was once the Caliphate, they established new eastern provinces and forced the Muslims out, replacing them with Armenians. So, by the 11th century, Armenians made up huge chunks of the population that was under attack by the Seljuks coming from the east. They were the ones who suffered the brunt of the raids and sacks, and if you recall, one of the theories as to why the emperor, Constantinos Dukas, did nothing to combat the Turks is that he just didn't care about the heretical non-Chalcedonian Armenian and Syrian Christians living in the eastern provinces. Even if that theory is not true, it was certainly believed at the time by many Armenians. Various Armenian historians, including well-established friend of the podcast, Matthew of Edessa, express intense rage at being abandoned by the heretical Romans. The scars of this perceived betrayal will ensure that Armenian-Byzantine relations remain frosty. When the Franks arrive in the region during the First Crusade, their close alliance with the Armenians will be fueled by not only fear of the Muslims, but distrust for the Byzantine Romans. As historian Andrew Bollinger puts it, the Franks and the Armenians were bound by hate. Now that we've got a bit of a foundational understanding of the Armenians, Let's take a look at some of the Armenian powers the Crusaders will run into when they come east, starting with the final king of Armenia. In 1045, Constantinos Monomachos forced the last Bagratuni king, Gakik II, to hand over the final piece of the Armenian puzzle, the city of Ani and its surroundings. I want to put a bit of an emphasis on the verb forced, which could just as easily be replaced by tricked into. I won't get into the details, but Gakik was not at all happy about the way things turned out. In return for his kingdom, Gakik was given the role of dukes in a western district near Caesarea, modern Kayseri in Turkey. However, despite this compensation, he continued to hold a serious grudge. As Matthew of Edessa puts it, he did not cease to nourish in his heart a deep grievance for the loss of the throne of his fathers against this treacherous and perverse race of heretics. Matthew had quite a way with words. Post Manzikert, the Roman Empire slipped into civil war and chaos, leaving the Armenian governors of the region to their own devices. The eternally bitter Gakik decided the time was right to exact his revenge. Whenever the opportunity presented itself, he would lead violent attacks on neighboring Byzantine settlements, even getting into it with other Armenians who remained loyal to the empire. His bloody temper tantrum reached a pinnacle, when he got his hands on a Roman bishop named Marcos, the metropolitan of Caesarea. Marcos had no love for the Armenians, who he viewed as heretics, and he rather enjoyed taunting them. One of the worst insults had come when he'd named his dog Armenian, a decision he would come to regret when he had the misfortune of falling into the clutches of the last Armenian king. Understandably upset at Marcos's bigotry, Gakik did what any logical person would do, he took Marcos's dog, Armenian, and threw him in a bag. Then, he had the hound beat 
so as to get him real angry. Then he took Marcos, the bishop, and added him to the bag, which contained his once lovable pup Armenian, who was now royally pissed the fuck off. And that's how Marcos ended up getting eaten by his own dog. Gakik would eventually get his too. Not too long after, he was murdered by three Byzantine brothers, the lords of a nearby fortress at Kizistra. These Byzantine brothers would also end up getting theirs. Uh, on second thought, I think I might have been a tad bit too euphemistic when I described Armenian-Byzantine relations as frosty. In the wake of Gakik's death, one of his officers, Rubin, took charge. Rubin may or may not have been related by blood to the Bagratunis, but he was definitely a bit of a torchbearer for them. Supported by remnants of Gakik's forces, Rubin took control of the fortress at Gobidara, deep in the Taurus Mountains, just north of Cilicia, where Anatolia meets both the Mediterranean and the region of Syria. Without any Byzantine forces around to put him down, Rubin became the first Lord of the Mountains, and founded the Rubinid dynasty, named after him of course. To complete the cycle of violence set off by Marcus's choice of canine nomenclature, in 1112, Rubin's grandson, Tauros, the third Lord of the Mountains, would avenge Gakik's death and murder the Byzantine brothers who'd assassinated the king. Matthew of Edessa quotes Tauros as saying to the brothers, Who were you when you assassinated a hero, the king of Armenia, consecrated by the holy unction? For that, you must answer to the Armenian nation. Yeah, some real princess bride shit. Within the next century, the Rubinids will come down from the mountains and seize all of the coastal region of Cilicia, creating the Kingdom of Armenian Cilicia. Other Armenians in the area were doing much the same as Rubin, and as the Roman presence in the region evaporated, they seized control of their local towns and fortresses. These Armenian lords would play a key role in the First Crusade, as it made its way through Anatolia, fighting off the Turks, who by that point had already made most of central Anatolia theirs. What's more, the Kingdom of Armenian Cilicia and other Armenian nobles would end up developing close ties to the neighboring Utramer states. Many of the future Utramer rulers will be half Armenian and the products of marriage alliances. In a bit of a contrast to Gakik and his deep-set hatred for the Byzantines, some Armenians actually use the Roman infrastructure as a way to come to power. We've already met the Armenian general, Filaretos Brahamios, whose name I think I mispronounced the first time around. Anyway, Filaretos Brahamios was a Byzantine general. He did not come from Armenian nobility, and some sources seem to indicate he was actually a bandit before being recruited by the Romans. Filaretos was ruthless, and in the Armenian sources, he's pretty much universally portrayed as being a cruel bastard. You might recall that Brahamios was given control of a substantial chunk of Byzantine forces by Romanos Diogenes. When Diogenes was blinded and removed from power, Brahamios held on to his command and basically became independent. The core of his little band of merry men was actually a bunch of Frankish mercenaries led by a Norman named Rambo. That's uh, Rambo, R-A-I-M-B-A-U-D. But uh, that spelling's not going to stop me from imagining him as a red bandana wearing Sylvester Stallone. Before Manzikert, a huge chunk of the Roman forces in the east, uh, like the ones Diogenes was using in his campaigns, were Normans and other Franks. After Manzikert, the Romans basically gave up on the east, and a lot of Normans were just left there. Rambo and his 8,000 Frankish knights ended up in the employ of Filaretos, 
who made good use of the heavy cavalry at his disposal. He also took in local Armenians and refugees from the regions being consumed by the Turkmen seeping into the Anatolian plateau. Filaretos wasted little time in carving out a little territory for himself. He refused to acknowledge Michael Dukas as emperor and set about bringing all the disparate Armenian statelets under his banner, as well as snatching up land from the few Roman-controlled areas left in the region. Many were convinced to join in, like Reuben in his mountain fortress, but others had to be brought in more forcefully. To seize the region of Melitene, Filaretos had to enter into combat with the dukes, Nikephoros Melesinos, whose name will come up again when we take a deeper look at events in Constantinople. Melesinos was able to hold on to a few loyal Armenians. It was in combat with one of them, Tornig, the Armenian prince of the city of Sassoon, that Rambo was killed. I am just as devastated as the rest of you. Rambo's death did not go unavenged, though. Filaretos was as shrewd a leader as any, and he wasn't afraid to make deals with the Turkmen and Muslims that were also taking advantage of the loss of Roman authority. Tornig ended up getting caught and murdered by a band of Turks, who cut his head off and sent it to Filaretos, assumingly in return for some hard cash. As for the Roman dukes, Melisinos ended up getting drawn into yet another Byzantine civil war, and the sources aren't clear as to how, but eventually, Filaretos did end up seizing all of Melitene's territory. By hook or by crook, Filaretos was going to build his little empire. He soon had his sights set on two big prizes, the cities of Antioch and Edessa, which of course will become the center of two of our Uchmer states. In 1077, Filaretos was able to take control of Edessa, but Antioch would prove a harder nut to crack. Antioch was a prized possession for the Byzantines, it was right at the corner between Anatolia and Syria, perfectly positioned to protect the coastal southern territories. It was also very well defended and nigh impossible to besiege. Those of you who have an idea of how the First Crusade plays out already know that the nine-month siege of Antioch is one of the most grueling experiences of the entire expedition. Antioch was not only strategically important, though. The city was incredibly important for the Christian religion, and one of the five cities of the Pentarchy, alongside Rome, Constantinople, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. So, despite the lack of attention paid to the rest of the eastern provinces, the Romans at least tried to hold on to Antioch. Constantinople sent Isaacios Komnenos to hold the fort. This is obviously not the by now dead former emperor, but rather his nephew. Isaacios was the younger brother of Manuel Komnenos, who you might remember as the general who was captured by Alp Arslan's brother-in-law, Ariscon, before Ariscon's flip to the Byzantine side. He was another older brother of future emperor Alexios Komnenos, who was by now an adult and himself a general. Isaacios was not only a skilled general, though, but a savvy political operator. He was able to keep Antioch out of Filaretos' hands. However, as Byzantium sunk even further into mayhem, Isaacios was called back to deal with something or other, who can even remember all the civil wars? Uh, kidding, we'll have to deal with that eventually, because the civil wars will end up with Alexios Komnenos on the throne. And of course, it's Alexios who will open the floodgates and bring the Franks into the Middle East. But for now, all that matters is that Isaacios was forced to leave Antioch. The Byzantines would never again have direct control over the holy city. Isaacios didn't leave the city completely undefended, he put it in the hands of a certain Vakag Palavuni. The Palavunis were a noble Armenian house and an ideal check to Filaretos, who was not only not a noble, but not even Armenian Christian. He was, ugh, 
Orthodox, which had probably endeared him to the Byzantines while serving under them, but made it harder to get along with the local Armenians. Either way, despite his fancy last name, Vakag was no match for Filaretos, and Filaretos ended up taking the city in 1078. It was also around this time that Filaretos accepted the offer to be brought back into the empire under the new emperor, Nikephoros Botaniates, who we will be getting to eventually. Regardless, this was a very hands-off sort of supervision. Filaretos was independent in all but name, though he did have to make some minor adjustments. For example, under Filaretos, Antioch had traded primarily with Amalfi, which was now under the control of Norman Sicily. No surprise there, given how much of Filaretos' army was made up of Normans. The Empire hated the Normans, who'd stolen their Italian possessions, and so they preferred to deal with the Venetians, who were always loyal and good friends of the Empire. <clears throat> Something caught in my throat. Anyway, once Filaretos somewhat reincorporated himself into the Empire, he made the switch, and Venetian merchants began to overtake Amalfitans in the ports of Antioch, though the Amalfitans never disappeared entirely. With the capture of Antioch, Edessa, and Melitene, Filaretos' burgeoning little kingdom was looking pretty strong. But he wasn't the only one building up his power. Filaretos was surrounded by Muslims, both established Syrian emirs and the new kids on the block, the Turkmen. By now, Albarslan's son, Malik Shah, was in charge of the Seljuk Empire, and Kutlumush's son, Suleiman, was setting up his own little sultanate of Rum in Anatolia, a situation we will also be getting to. Around 1084, sensing the walls closing in, Filareto started to think about the unthinkable, converting to Islam. Now, an Armenian converting to Islam was really not that out of the ordinary, but Filaretos was a recognized Byzantine governor. For him to convert to Islam was a big deal. What happened next is disputable. Different sources tell different stories. Some say he never converted, just thought about it. Not going to do it, just thinking about it. But some say he did convert. The historian Anna Komnena says that Filaretos' son was so concerned about his father's possible conversion to Islam that he made a deal with the Sultan of Rum, Suleiman. And he was the one who delivered the city to the Sultan. But there are some other theories that Alexios, who was emperor by now, and actually friendly with Suleiman, had authorized the Sultan to take the city. But if that's true, this plan backfired, because the city now fell completely out of Byzantine control. However it happened, in 1084, Suleiman took the city for the Seljuks, and Antioch will end up shoveled around between various Seljuk powers until the Crusaders arrive. And as for Filaretos, he would die just a year after losing Antioch, in 1085. His little kingdom, which had already lost so much, completely crumbled after this. But pieces of it remained. One of his generals, Toros, was able to secure control over Edessa, and another, Coriel, was able to keep Melitene. Through them, the close ties Filaretos had established with Frankish mercenaries like Rambo would continue to tighten. To the generals of Filaretos' army, the Crusaders weren't unknowns. They'd served alongside guys just like them. In 1098, Toros will invite a Frankish crusader into Edessa, sparking a chain of events that will lead to the founding of the first Uchmer state. And just a few years later, in 1101, Coriel will marry his daughter Morphia to the future king of Jerusalem, Baldwin II. 
That's the same Baldwin from the failed rescue attempt we started today's episode with. Baldwin and Morpheus, half-Frank and half-Armenian daughter, Melisande, will become queen of Jerusalem. And under her rule, the kingdom will move even further towards a Frankish-Armenian fusion. The foundation for this merger of cultures was laid in the 1070s and 1080s by Filaretos Berhamios. This is where we will leave the Armenians for now. But their story is just beginning, and it's not limited to Cilicia and Syria. Next time on History of the Uchimera, we'll be traveling south to Egypt. In 1073, just as Filaretos was consolidating his own kingdom, one of his countrymen was pushing the Fatimid Caliph into a purely ornamental role and seizing power for himself. Badr al-Jamili will come to hold not only military, but near total administrative power in the Fatimid Caliphate, becoming the first Vizier of the Sword. <laughs> 